Crossway Church Sermon Audio. So beginning in Luke twenty-two fifty-four. Then they seized Jesus and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Later, Jesus is led before Pilate, and we read, And when Pilate learned that Jesus belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right side and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divine his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. Food and drink are both ingested. They go into the stomach, and they're digested. They both deliver nutrition to the body through the bloodstream. But there are some important differences. One difference is that fluids need no chewing and little digesting. That's why the elements in liquids go quickly into the bloodstream and have a more immediate effect on the body. If you doubt that conclusion, simply ask a mother who just let her child drink a can of soda, and she will confirm this. It's true about fluids 
Another difference between the two is that liquid is more urgently needed by the body than solids. That's why humans can go quite a bit longer without food than without water. After oxygen, water is the second most urgent need of the body. Thirst is created when the water volume of the body falls below a certain threshold. The brain then signals thirst, and we drink. Keep that in mind and think about Jesus going to the cross. There's no question that he was critically dehydrated before he was even nailed to the cross. Consider the situation. He's arrested in the middle of the night. Then they put him before a highly irregular and probably illegal religious court. There before the religious rulers, they lied about him, condemned him, mocked him, spit on him, slapped him, and punched him. He's already under great duress and pressure. And my guess is that he's not in any position to say, "Uh, hang on, everybody, I'm a little thirsty. Can I just get some water? I'll be right back. He can't do that. But as if the torment of those who wanted him dead was not enough, at sunrise, Peter, the self-proclaimed most loyal disciple, if you you could put it in those words, he denies knowing his Lord which signifies that they had all left him alone. His captors then deliver him to Pilate. Pilate, who wants absolutely absolutely nothing to do with all this controversy and just finds it really inconvenient. So Pilate elects to defer this hot potato and sends Jesus over to King Herod. Herod is at first enthusiastic about meeting Jesus, because Jesus is supposed to be a spectacular personality, a huge uh, vat of entertainment for a man like him. But when his expectation is not met, because Jesus remains silent, and he says nothing before this wicked man, Herod turns surly. He and his soldiers ridicule Jesus, and it's there at Herod's court, which we just heard from the Scriptures with Herod's soldiers, that they dress Jesus up in a mock royal robe. And they do this purely to humiliate him on his way back to Pilate. Can you see the cruelty and injustice that humanity is capable of? It's known that children can be cruel to each other. They can bully each other. But this is not just true of children. It's true of us. And it's on display in the trial of Jesus. When Jesus gets back and faces Pilate again, he is in reality facing politically rigged injustice. This court is entirely corrupt and is for sale. And then the real suffering begins. It's possible that at some point before the whipping, cross-carrying, and crucifixion, that someone gives Jesus a drink of water. It's possible. We don't know. But given the way he's treated, it seems rather likely that no one's looking out for his physical needs. You don't really do that with someone condemned to die. Jesus, especially in those times, Jesus has probably not had a drink since dinner the night before. He is thirsty. So why then do we read this in Matthew chapter 27? 
verses 33 to 34. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. He's bleeding profusely. He's exhausted. His nerve endings are exposed. He's deeply bruised all over his body. In just a few moments, he will be executed by one of the most brutal methods ever conjured up. This is the last stop before the hammer drives the nails. Why not take any bit of comfort available to him? Why refuse this drink? To answer that, we must try to understand what this drink was. What is wine mixed with gall? It's a challenging subject, hard to be definitive, but we can get close, I think. It could well be that this wine mixed with gall is both a drink meant for both comfort and for torment, meant for different things by different people. You see, it's well noted that the Jews would offer wine with a seed of frankincense in it to those condemned to die because the herb would act as an anesthetic and numb the pain. It's even possible that this mixture was given by Jewish women who wanted to apply Proverbs 31, verses 6 to 7, which says, Give strong drink to the one who's perishing, and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Basically, get them a little drunk so as to dull their pain. In Mark's gospel, he says, It was wine mixed with Myrrh rather than wine mixed with gall. Myrrh would basically have the same mildly numbing effect as frankincense. And so this is probably meant by some there to comfort Jesus. But what is gall? That word that Matthew uses. Gall is thought to be a bitter herb. One that is potentially poisonous and increases thirst. Kind of like drinking salt water when you're thirsty. Even though it's water... It's going to make you more thirsty. That salt content will increase your thirst, making your condition worse. So what should we make of this? Well, it's possible that the tradition of compassion was also used to mock. Perhaps the, the women there wanted to give Jesus a drink, and so they said, let's give him, can we give him some wine with some myrrh in it? And perhaps the soldiers or the religious rulers said, sure, you can give him something to drink, but let's put some gall in there as well. Or maybe they snuck some in there as well. Still, no matter how it's meant, it's a liquid that Jesus could have received momentary comfort from, from, at least on his lips, at least on his tongue, at least in his mouth. But here he is in terminal condition, each second, moment by moment, full of torment. Every nerve ending in his body screaming with the desire that this torment would end. And he has no other means of relief. And he has hours in front of him to suffocate and to bleed out on the cross. And yet he refuses to drink. Apparently Jesus does not want to be numbed. He wants no part of painkilling, no matter how mild or how effective he does not see this simply as something that a few bad people are doing to him. He will accept what is happening. This is his father's will for him. It is father's plan. He's going to embrace that plan to the very end. And, and we thank the Lord for doing that, don't we? For going through to the very end. 
Jesus rejects the wine, myrrh, gall, cocktail. But there's another drink that he doesn't refuse. You see, he's refusing one drink because he's drinking another. He rejects the wine because he's already imbibing something far more potent. The Scriptures repeatedly refer to God's wrath as a drink. More specifically, they talk about the cup of God's wrath. Imagine God's wrathful punishment for sin in the form of a liquid. Imagine a large cup filled to the brim. It's not, a, it's not filled with wine, which according to Psalm 104 verse 15 says, God gives to gladden the heart. Instead, this cup is brimming with that fluid of ultimate punishment. It is the brew of a holy God. It is deadly. Oh, yes, it is the most lethal drink of all. Now, take someone who deserves God's wrath. Imagine them taking that cup and choking down that drink. Can we even begin to fathom how it would burn? Can we imagine the sputtering and gagging on that drink? Each gulp would be more deadly and more righteous than the last. Death in its fullness is at the bottom of that drink. Final death, ultimate death. This cup of wrath, this deadliest drink, it is the drink that Jesus was consuming on the cross. That's the drink He did receive. He did accept. While He rejected a cup of potential relief, this was the cup He accepted. He even tells it in advance. You may remember the story of His arrest. Some dramatics happened at His arrest. As the soldiers advance to arrest Jesus, Peter pulls out a sword, cuts off someone's ear, and to this, Jesus heals the ear and then says to Peter in John chapter, 11, uh, John chapter 18, verse 11, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? The entire passion of Christ is summed up like this. Jesus takes the wrath of the Father. Jesus drinks the wrath of the Father. He drinks the cup of God's wrath. But why? Why does He do that? Here's the answer. He drinks to quench our thirst. He drinks to quench our thirst. You might ask, what thirst? I'm not aware that I'm thirsty. Or you may take it a step further and say, well, do you mean my desire for things or my, let's say, my craving for wealth? Sort of. Sort of he drinks for that, but there's more. Well, is it my craving to achieve, my ambitions? Yes, but you have a deeper thirst, a deeper need than that. Well, do you mean my longing for justice in this world? Is it that I long to see the wrong made right? Sort of sort of, but there's even a deeper hydration that we need. Then is it this, my thirst for relationship, my desire for love? Not quite. It's not even that. Those things that most would say are a need for humanity. This is a thirst so deep down that it is at the root of all of our dryness. All other thirsts 
flow from this one. When this thirst is quenched, all others are remedied. You see, we are the ones who should drink the cup of holy anger that Jesus drank. We have incurred God's fury. We're the ones that told Him in our natural state, no thanks, I'll do life my way. We are those who have gone about life as if God does not exist, as if He's not the great maker, as if we gave life to ourselves, as if His purposes for us matter not, as if whether we choose to do what is just and right as opposed to what He has revealed, we have sought to define Him, to direct Him, to teach Him what is right and fair and just. We have rebelled and we have called that rebellion good. We deserve that cup, and we will drink that cup. We will drink all of what is in that cup unless our thirst is met in some other way. You see, that deep-down thirst, that dehydration at the bottom of our existence is the need to be right with God. He made us. And we need to be right with Him. If we're not right with our Creator, nothing can be right. And there is no getting around it. We've all failed to acknowledge and worship and cry out to and obey Him the way we ought to have done. We have offended His righteous requirements more times than we know or we want to think about, or we care to remember. Therefore, we all get a drink from God. We all have a brimming, steaming cup of God's wrath sitting in front of us. And though we are thirsty, oh so thirsty, deep down, thirsty for forgiveness and life and our Creator's love and knowledge of the God who made us and a longing to understand our purposes, we can see, even though we have that, we see that cup looming there, that inescapable and devastating cup of the wrath of God. But, If you will believe it, we don't have to drink that cup. We don't have to drink the bitter gall fluid. If you will believe that Jesus is God's one true Son who lives evermore, here's what happens. In the crucifixion, Jesus reaches over. He takes that cup that you deserve, that I deserve, and He drinks it. He doesn't drink anything else. He drinks that cup. He drinks it all the way down, every drop, and there's none left. There's no wrath left for you or for me. You see, the drink that killed him grants us life. The drink that killed him grants us life. He he drinks, and it quenches our thirst. I'd like to ask the ushers to come and man the tables. And in a few moments, we'll come to these tables and partake of the Lord's Supper together. The Lord gave us a simple but profound ritual to remember and engage Him in. It's a special gift to His people. We call it 
sometimes communion, sometimes the Lord's table or the Lord's supper. It is centered on what Jesus has done on the cross. He gave His body. He shed His blood. That was the cup He drank. And in drinking that cup of the holy anger of God, do you know what He did? He poured Himself out. As we sang earlier, He poured Himself out. So He drinks the cup of God's wrath. And we partake of the drink of life, which is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Represented here, bread for his body, wine for his blood. Now we eat and drink, and we turn our eyes back on him and what he has done. Think of it. Jesus refused that drink, the wine myrrh and gall mixture. He went without any comfort so that, we, so that we would never go without some comfort, that we would never go without full comfort, that we'd never go without ultimate comfort, knowing that we have forgiveness and life in His name. His discomfort becomes our comfort. His death becomes our life. He drinks death and we get life. Would you stand with me, please? Tonight on this Good Friday, we eat and we drink. We partake of the bread and the cup, the body and the blood. We take in the drink that He's provided. He's quenched our thirst and given us life. Let's pray together. We'll ask God to bless this supper, and then we'll partake. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.